Good morning. Glad that you have chosen to worship with us this morning. I'm Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't met you, I'd love to do so, perhaps after the service. We've been going through a series of preaching of sermons on the Psalms that we've been calling the Songs of Hope. And this is definitely one of those Psalms that is full of hope, that's full of comfort, uh, but it's also very threatening as well. Would you follow along in your bulletin as I read? This is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this passage with many different needs, with many different hopes, with many different doubts and skepticisms and perhaps even cynicisms. Father, I pray that you would meet us wherever we find ourselves this morning, that you would let us realize that it's no accident that we're here, that you have gathered us, whether we have been believers for many years or whether we just walked in to the church for the very first time, that you have gathered us together. Would you speak to us? Would you minister your grace to us through this passage? And as we continue to worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a biography that came out last August simply called Paterno, the writer tells of a famously composed Joe Paterno a week before he died, breaking down in sobs. Weeping with his son in the room, he says, My name, 
my name. I have spent my whole life trying to make that name mean something. And now it's gone. The title of the book is just Paterno. Because even if you're not a football fan, that name conjures up something in your mind. And it conjures up most likely some sort of interest in this person. This person whose name was great in football circles has now come to mean something very different, even to those of us who aren't football fans. Now, I'm sure as Paterno was speaking these words and sobbing and weeping, that he had a lot of anger towards other people, perhaps those that he had trusted that had betrayed him, perhaps the media scrutiny that had been uh, come upon him in the last few months. But don't you know, because he's human, because he's like us, that there's also a lot of regret. There's also a lot of self-loathing and maybe even a good bit of shame. What do you do with these things? What do you do with self-loathing? What do you do with your regret? What do you do with your shame? When you at long last don't have anything, anyone else to blame, and you pause long enough to look into your own heart, your own soul, your own life, and you don't like what you see, what do you do? Where do you take that? Probably everyone here in this room has wrestled with shame at some point in their life. And if you haven't, it's probably because you're ashamed to admit it. How do I know this? How do I know that everyone in this room has likely dealt with shame? Well, I could say, well, I'm the pastor, and after years of biblical reflection, I have come to a certain sense of the human anthropology, and we all deal with shame. Or I could say that I'm the pastor, and I've seen this in my own life that I often looked at, look into my own life and I don't like what I see, that I often allow others' opinions to dictate to me my sense of well-being, that I often live under a mountain of shoulds that is very, very heavy. The Psalms, as we've seen, are full of high points, but you get the sense when reading this Psalm that you're invited to open a tremendous liberating gift, that you've walked into something very, very special, and that in overhearing someone else be healed of emotional and spiritual trauma, that perhaps you're opening the key to your own healing. David had a number of victories in his life, one that has come into our lexicon that even non-Christians, those who aren't familiar with the Bible per se, talk about as David and Goliath. It's a David and Goliath story. It's when someone very small fights against someone who is very imposing and large and more, more powerful than him. And certainly he would look back into his life and remember that great victory. But as we read this psalm, we realize that he had an, an even greater victory, infinitely greater. The superscription, which is the heading that we didn't print in your bulletin, says that this psalm was composed after his sin with Bathsheba after he had had Uriah killed and as Nathan had come to confront him over that, that this psalm is tied to a historical circumstance that we've been talking about a little bit in the last couple of weeks, that David is king of Israel. And as his men are out fighting on his behalf, he spies this beautiful young woman and has an affair with her while her husband is off at war. And he invites her 
husband back so that if she becomes pregnant, then he'll get the blame or, or he'll get the credit, not the blame, that Uriah would be seen as naturally the father. But that fails. That doesn't work out. And so what does David do to cover up this pregnancy? He puts Uriah on the front lines and has him killed. And we read about this in the Samuel reading that was in your bulletin earlier, where Nathan comes and confronts him over that. And we should see in this psalm that for all of us, for all of us with a past, for all of us with guilt, for all of us with shame, that if David can recover from this, if David can meet with God and not only be absolved, but be welcomed, be forgiven, be transformed, then certainly you and I can have hope. You know, we can readily talk in our culture today about scandal, about guilt, about remorse, about shame, about even about forgiveness. These terms still mean something. But talking about judgment, talking about iniquity, talking about sin is a big no-no. These are terms whose time has come and gone. To call something sin seems to imply that everyone must behave according to my moral opinion, and what's wrong for me must also therefore be wrong for you. And that's a big no-no in our culture. If we talk about sin at all, it's usually in a wink-wink sort of way. We talk about Las Vegas as, the, the, as sin city. We talk about driving a big SUV as a carbon sin. We have sin taxes that relate to certain vices in our community. We talk about sin in a very wink-wink way, but there are still a few real sins that we as a culture identify collectively and say, yeah, that is evil, that is sinful. We think about sexual abuse, especially of children, which is why Paterno's name has been in the news and what happened in his administration we think about big corporations who exploit the poor. We think about people who absolutize their own lifestyle choices, that these are still seen somehow as sinful in our culture. And what do they have in common? They're the sins of someone else. They're sins that we can disassociate ourselves from and point to and say, yes, that is sinful. Oscar Wilde and his book, A Picture of Dorian Gray, has this great line where Lord Henry, Dorian's friend, says to him, you will always be fond of me, Dorian. I represent to you all the sins you never had the courage to commit. We need sinners in our lives. We need other people to set our moral compass by. We need bad people in our lives so that we can disassociate the sin that we see in their lives so that we can change our opinion of ourselves, so that we can build our identity. We can be confident of our own opinion if someone else is wrong. David, however, what does he say? Cleanse me. Have mercy on me. I know my sin, and it's always before me. This is an astounding turn of events. This is an astounding confession because when did this take place? You say, well, you just told me it took place after the sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed, and you would be right. I would be right. But it wasn't immediate. In fact, there was at least nine months since what it 
since the, uh, he had gotten Bathsheba pregnant until he confessed, probably a little bit longer, at least nine months, because Bathsheba has given birth at this time. What was David doing during that time? He was going about the business of being king. He was going about life. And when Uriah dies, he sends for Bathsheba and brings her into his house to be his wife. And he wasn't coy about his intentions with Uriah. He didn't just strategize so that maybe Uriah would be killed in battle. He sends a note with Uriah to Joab, his field commander, that says, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. He has no fear whatsoever that someone's going to tell on him. It's utterly brazen. This is the attitude of someone who's too big to fail. And when he slept with Bathsheba, when he had Uriah killed, I believe that he wasn't feeling like an adulterer and a murderer. He was simply feeling like a king. He had every right to do these things. He's the king. He didn't run to God and confess his sins. He sat on them for maybe a year. We see this majestic sense of entitlement that blinded him to his own sin. It didn't even matter. He's king. And it wasn't until Nathan the prophet came and told him a story that it broke through. Nathan knew what we know, that it's so much easier to point at someone else's sin. It's so much easier to condemn someone else. And so Nathan tells him a story that draws this readiness out in David. And he says, David says of this person in the parable, let him die again the right of king, of a king, the entitlement of a king. I pass judgment on this person. Let him die. But it turns out that Nathan has told him a story that implicates David, and so David is condemning himself. Sin is no longer out there, so he must say, cleanse me, have mercy on me, for I know my sin. It's ever before me. This isn't a a Jedi mind trick that Nathan is playing on David. It's not a form of spiritual judo. What it is, is it's revelation from God. David sees. In verse 6, it says, You desired faithfulness even in the womb. He's talking to God here. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Now, this is a bit of an unfortunate translation because it's not womb that he's talking about. It's inner regions of the person. It's the hidden recesses of the heart. It's not a commentary on original sin. It's a commentary on where David's biggest problem lied, in the hidden recesses of the heart. That's where David couldn't see. Any amount of introspection wouldn't have given given him that realization without God specifically speaking to him and revealing this to him through Nathan the prophet. It's revelation. He's finally able to see his actions for what they are. Sin is not something that lies out there any longer, but sin, and it's much more than behavior. Sin is something that has corroded his own heart and life. Now think with me for a minute. If David, king of Israel, king of God's people, steeped in the law of God, could go for a year without seeing his sin, is it possible that you and I could be blinded to our own? He didn't see, and he had killed 
somebody. If we don't see sin as David did, and if we don't see God's grace as David did, then whether we call it sin with a capital S, whether we call it shortcomings, whether we call it vices, whether we call it peccadilloes, what will we do? What will our guilt and shame cause us to do when we see those things, when we see shortcomings, when we see failures? Let me propose to you three responses that we generally will go to that come out of this passage. One is when we see these things or someone else points them out in our lives, we'll say, I didn't do it. Now, that doesn't mean we necessarily believe that we were not guilty in the act, but what we're trying to do is to get the other person not to conclude that. In in 1 Samuel, we see David trying to cover his tracks to make sure that no one finds out. And this is what shame does. Shame causes us to cover and hide and keep things to ourselves. It causes us to defend ourselves for things that we don't even need to. Have you ever answered the phone when you've been sleeping and the person that on the other end knows that you've been sleeping and says, oh, did I wake you up? And you say, oh, no, 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 no. Because who takes naps? Who sleeps? That's so absurd. Why do we have to defend ourselves from taking a nap? When you're done at work for the day and you're reading some news online and someone stops by your desk and sees that you've got CNN on your computer and not a spreadsheet from work, what do you do? You have to explain. You say, oh, well, I'm done with work. I was actually just leaving. Someone shows up unexpectedly to your messy home and you feel like you have to give this explanation of how it's not messy all the other times. It's just when you've shown up. I've laid down for a nap on our couch in the front room, and I've gotten up to move for fear that someone might come to the front window. Not because I'm worried about them disturbing my sleep, it's because I don't want them to think I'm lazy. Why do we defend ourselves on things like that? Why are we so neurotic? Why do we feel like we have to cover our tracks, even over things that we shouldn't care about? In Samuel, we see David asking How can I cover my tracks? How can I cover up this sin? How can I hide it? But in Psalm 51, it becomes, how could I treat God in this way? God, you've given me nothing but mercy, unfailing love, and great compassion, and I have treated you like dirt. Steve Brown, who is one of my seminary professors, um, also my preaching professor, so if you don't like my preaching, you can send your notes his way. He'll take responsibility. He tells a story of one time his daughter was in a very difficult advanced English course, and she desperately wanted to get out of it. She wanted to get back in the regular course, so she comes home and says in tears, Dad, if I don't transfer out of this class, I'm going to fail. And so she begged him to help her get into a regular English course. And so Steve took her down to talk with her teacher. And as soon as they come into the room, Robin, his daughter, starts sobbing again. And so the teacher asked Steve if he would leave, leave his daughter alone so that she could talk to him. And she said, after Steve had left, left, Robin, what if I promised you an A no matter what you did in the class? If I gave you an A before you even started, would you be willing 
to stay in the class and complete it. Now, she's having a hard time in English, but she's no dummy. And so she says, well, yeah, I could do that. And the teacher let her stay. And she explained to Steve later that she took away the threat of a bad grade so that Robin could actually learn English. She took away the threat of shame so that she could actually learn. And what did the daughter do? What did Robin do in that class? She made all A's in the class. Our first step of repentance, our first step of coming to grips with our shame and moving beyond it is understanding that when you sin, you sin against grace. When you sin, you sin against grace, compassion, mercy. You don't sin against the tally sheet. You don't sin against an accountant. You don't sin against a record book. You sin against grace. If you're a Christian, when you make a C, when you make a D, when you look into your own life and you see your shortcomings and failures, when you make a D, you have an A. So get over it. Get over your defensiveness. Get over your posturing. Get over your pretending to be something that you're not. Pretending to be someone that you're not. You have an A. Live in that way. Stop making defenses for piddly little things. You don't need to. If you're covered with Jesus, you have an A, so get over it and move on. We don't have to cover our tracks because God is not out to get us. With him, unlike anyone else, we don't have to say, I didn't really do it. We don't have to hide. We don't have to cover our tracks. Secondly, if we don't see sin as David does, and if we don't see grace in God's offer of salvation, then we'll say, it wasn't me, or it was out of character for me. What does David say? I was born in sin. I've lived in in sin. From the time I was in the womb, I've lived in a world of sin. What David realizes is that he's not simply someone who commits sins, but he is a sinner through and through. And so therefore, he says in verse 2, wash away all my iniquity. Iniquity is waywardness. It's deliberately choosing the wrong way. It's deliberately choosing the path that leads away from God. That's what he's asking God to cleanse him of. You see, it's not simply behavioral. It's not simply the murder and the adultery. It is that he has committed iniquity. He has walked away intentionally from God. Verse 3, blot out my transgressions. That's overt rebellion. Did you catch the, the part in the Samuel passage that the problem with David is that he despised God in his actions. His despising of God is, in fact, what led to his actions. And he has to see that. He can't just confess murder and adultery. He has to confess, God, I have despised you. I have walked away from you. I have been wayward in my heart, and therefore I sinned. He's not just someone who commits sins, but he is a sinner through and through. Adultery and murder, as heinous and terrible as they are, are simply the presenting issue of a much deeper sickness. They come out of a majestic sense of entitlement. They come from an assertion of the self, and this is the issue. In other words, his crimes weren't a freak occurrence, but were in character for him. 
because he's a sinner. And that's what David is saying. I was born in sin. I have lived in sin. I have committed sins, yes, but I am an utter sinner. Would you blot out? Would you cleanse? Would you wash away all of those things? That's the second step of repentance, is realizing that the most important things to confess, thing to confess, is sin, not simply sins. To confess the sin that's underneath the sin. We have to deal with the despising of God. We have to deal with the waywardness in our heart. We have to deal with the self-assertion from which sins spring. We have to deal with the inner regions, the hidden recesses of the heart that breed self-importance and self-promotion so much that we would go from anger to even murder. I didn't do it. It wasn't me, or maybe it's not that big a deal. We rationalize our own sin. In verses 4 and 6, David comes to the conclusion that against you and you only have I sinned. This is not meant to minimize the the terribleness of what he has done, as if somehow the, the horror of killing Uriah and exploiting this woman is not important. The societal effects of these sins are absolutely severe, and they cry out for justice. But what David has come to realize that is that his actions aren't simply deplorable because we as a society have come to consensus that murder and adultery is wrong. It's not just evil in an abstract sense, but it's sin against the Creator. It's an offense against grace. It's telling him to back off. It's telling him that what I have done is no big deal. David says instead, against you and you only have I sinned. And that's the third step of repentance is that we grieve not simply over the consequences of our sin or not simply over our behavior that other people have seen, but that we sinned against God. That our most significant issues spring from a heart of selfish isolation and a despising of God and telling him to back off. I've got it. I can handle this. I'm fine on my own. Now, David was a murderer. And Joe Paterno, it appears at least, that he protected or at least allowed a known pedophile to have access to children in his administration. And maybe those two things are sort of difficult to relate to. We say, yeah, those people have issues. And certainly they did. But there was an article this week on CNN that was entitled, Americans Reveal Their Favorite Sins. You know what they are? Top four. 60% of Americans admitted they're tempted to worry. The same 60% said that they're tempted often to, uh, to procrastinate. 55% said they're tempted to overeat. 41% said they're tempted by sloth or laziness. These are not the sex, drugs, and rock and roll sins that we think our culture would say, yeah, that's what I'm tempted to. No, these are much more mundane, much more homely sins, sins that you and I can relate to. For all of us non-murderers in here, what about worry? What about procrastination? What about overindulgence? What about laziness? Have any of you been tempted in any of those things 
this year, this week, this month, whatever the sin du jour is, what we need to see in order to get out from under it are two things, and I'll end with this. First of all, the seriousness of the disorder and the possibility of new life. First of all, seriousness. In dealing with our sin, Jesus moves first to wound, then to heal. First to wound, then to heal. What David saw and what Jesus taught over and over is that we have a problem that no religious convention, no devotional practice can heal. David said, you did not desire sacrifice or I would have brought it. He's not saying that all of the sacrificial system is invalid or unvaluable. There is value in the symbolism there, but what he is saying is that those things are pointing towards something else. They're pointing to Jesus as the true substitute, as the true sacrifice. I could bring all of the religious devotion that I possibly could muster, and it doesn't get me out of the hole of sin. It doesn't get me any closer to God unless it reflects something in the heart. You're not looking for religious posturing, David seems to be saying, but only a dismantled self. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, verse 17 says, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. The only way to God, the only way to forgiveness, the only way out of the problem of sin is the shattering of one's spirit. It's the brokenness of one's heart. It's a dismantled self. Why does God want this? Why does he want to crush our spirit in this way? The reason is, the more that we see our problem of sin, the deeper that we see our hole actually was, the more we see that we needed rescue, the greater our sense of who God is, the greater our sense of his compassion and mercy is. Our bigger view, the bigger our view of God is. The more that we see just how lost we were, the greater we rejoice over his salvation when it comes. And we can only see the seriousness of sin when we see the cost, the lengths to which God went to solve it, to remedy it. The seriousness of sin, first of all, but then because Jesus is first to wound, then to heal, we've got to see the seriousness of our sin problem, but then he wants us in seeing that not to live there and dwell there, but to come to the possibility of new life. We begin to see that there is this great gulf between God and us, that we are so far lost, that we are so far in our natural selves unlike him, that we are so deep in our sin problem that there's this great gap, gap, this great gulf. And how does God deal with that? Does he lay out this plan? Does he give us a ladder and say, get busy climbing? Does he say, come back to me when you're a little bit better, when you've worked on that, when you fix this problem, then we can talk? Does he just reject us out of hand? Does he save us but then continually berate us and remind us of how lucky we are? No, that's what shame does. That's what we do to each other. We grant forgiveness and then berate the person and take it back. We grant conditional 
forgiveness. That's what we do to ourselves. And that's why so many of us are defensive and angry and caught up in little, piddling little difficulties and arguments. What does David cling to? What does he see when he genuinely turns to God? And what will you see if you genuinely turn and say, God, help me. God, rescue me. Steadfast love, verse 1. This is hesed, which we talked about last week and in our Ruth series. This is love that puts itself in danger. This is love that will go to any lengths to rescue its beloved. That's what you find on God's face when you turn to him. Son, our daughter, hesed, steadfast love, an A+. You're good with me. We're okay. You find not anger, but a smile. David leaned into God's steadfast love, and he realized that what he found when he turned to God finally was not disappointment, not anger, not condemnation, but an offer. An offer. And we have something that David never had. We have a guarantee of God's disposition toward us. Because in David's day, the sacrifices pointed forward towards something that hadn't happened yet. But in our day, we see what they pointed to. We see the ultimate sacrifices. In David's day, the sacrifices were symbolic of something that was coming. They were meant to say, David, all of Israel, you can't make yourself clean. There has to be something external to you to make yourself clean. Here's a sacrifice. Here's a substitute that points to that fact, but points to something far beyond it and that far transcends it. They can't make you clean, but I will give you the one final sacrifice that will blot out all of your transgressions forever. Forgiveness, you see, always costs something. If you grant someone forgiveness for something that they have done to harm you, you are choosing to pay that debt for them. You're absorbing that hurt, that cost, when you forgive them. Forgiveness always costs something, and it cost God his only son. He sent Jesus as a substitute. Everything that David was bringing to the temple was symbolic and important, but symbolic pointing to Jesus, the, f- the final and ultimate sacrifice that through him you could have all your sins cleansed away forever. Forgiveness always costs something, and that's exactly what God understands and how he forgives you. He chooses to absorb your debt in himself. It costs him deeply. It costs his only son. He doesn't just wipe it away. He says, no, I will pay for it. And then It's done away with. David received mercy, though he was guilty. Jesus received no mercy, though he was innocent. This is the great reversal. Instead of shame, God offers a son. And when you see God on a cross, when you see God going to his death, you see not only how serious your sin problem is, but you see this glorious possibility of a new life that can only come from God on a cross. When you see God on a cross, when you take hold of that promise, you can be confident that you will never, ever, ever be disowned. 
that there's no behavior that you can conceive of that will cause him to love you any less. And that our internal monologue, our past, our shame, our guilt will never keep him from saying, son or daughter, come home. Come and be restored. That's exactly what David felt. As great as his sins were, he felt the embrace of a prodigal father that said, come home, David. That's what Jesus came to finalize and make possible. That's his story. That's his life. And I encourage you, I invite you to take hold of his life now as we pray. Father, I pray that you would make this promise of the great reversal to be real to us, that we would find a way through our sin and our shame and our guilt and find our way to you, that that pathway would be through Jesus. And as we come to this table in a moment, as we confess our faith, let it be as we sing with delight that Jesus is all in all, that Jesus has done what we could never do for ourselves. And I pray that you would make us to believe that more fully as a community, more fully as individuals, and if we are yet to believe, to take one step towards that hope. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.